0: That's all there is to it?
1: No, no, that ain't all there is to it. You got to get in, you got to get out. You got to pick the right spot, the right time. And you got to try not to get famous while you're in act. That's all there was to it. Any idiot could do it. I'm sorry. Hey, now, I want to ask you something. Are you listening to me, asshole? Because I like you. I got a serious question for you. What the fuck are you doing? This is not shit for you to be messing with.
2: <sighs> are you ready
1: to hear something? I want you to see if this sounds familiar. Anytime you try a decent crime, you got 50 ways you can fuck up. If you think it's 25 of them, then you're a genius. And you ain't no genius.
3: You remember who told me that? From Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critic. A podcast about destroying your marriage, one movie at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, probably because she's suffering from a severe case of Stockholm Syndrome, is my lovely wife Nakia, also known as the unenthusiastic critic. Hi. On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of Sidney Lumet's 1975 classic Dog Day Afternoon. And, Nakia, this is a story of a bank robbery gone wrong. Okay. And last week, when we announced that we'd be watching this movie, you brought up another movie about a bank robbery gone wrong, Bill Murray's criminally underappreciated black comedy, Quick Change.
2: I don't think it's criminally (laughs) underappreciated, but okay.
3: (laughs) And that got me to thinking about the fact that I love these sorts of movies, and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I think before we watch the movie this week, we can talk a little bit about this particular subgenre. I mean these are not just crime films, they are not just heist films, they are films about crimes that go to shit. Mm-hmm. And I love those kinds of movies. <laughs> I mean there there are plenty of Good or great movies about professional crooks and successful heists. But I really have a soft spot for these amateur criminals. The poor schmucks who try to make the big score and end up way, way over their heads. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I like these movies. Why do we like these movies so much? I mean, the Coen brothers have basically built an empire on these sorts of stories. Why are movies about crappy criminals so appealing?
2: I mean, I think it's twofold, right? I think it allows us, as viewers, a feeling of superiority, but at the same time forces us to be honest about ourselves and to relate to these characters. So I think a lot of people, you included, walk (laughs) around with this idea that if they wanted to... They could just go and rob a bank and it wouldn't be a big deal. And, you know, they they would be smart enough to figure it out and not get caught. They would outsmart the smartest of criminals who have gotten caught doing these very same crimes. Um, Basically, everyone thinks they are walking around in Ocean's Eleven (laughs) and you're actually walking around in Raisin, Arizona.
3: (laughs) I am pretty sure that I would be a master criminal if See, I chose and to what, go. That's what everybody to the thinks. It's like, I,
2: I, I wouldn't get caught. I would totally know what to do. Absolutely not. You would absolutely be caught. And you need to be honest about that. And then you would not do well in prison. So I think that's what it is. So it allows us one to feel superior, like, oh, well, you know, these criminals are stupid and I would totally be able to do this better. But underneath that delusion is the honesty that that is who you would be. You would be the failed criminal.
3: So I, I guess this is this is part of my question. Are these morality plays? Are they cautionary fables that <laughs> instruct those of us who might be tempted to do this mm-hmm. sort of thing to not do them? Or do we all sort of wish that we could be those people? I mean, okay, so as an example, in Fargo, right. when Jerry Lundergaard decides to get out of debt by having his own wife kidnapped... Mm-hmm. Are we rooting for Jerry, or are we waiting for Jerry to get what's coming to him?
2: I think it can be both.
3: I feel like it is both. I feel like we're, we're in that movie, we're kind of rooting for everybody. Right. We're rooting for Marge to catch Jerry. Right. We're rooting for Jerry to somehow get away with it, because he's such a sad schmuck of a character. Mm-hmm. And even when, like, Steve Buscemi finds the million dollars and tries to get away with it we're kind of rooting for him a little bit too and i don't know why that is
2: i mean because one there is just the quintessential everyone loves an underdog mm-hmm. so we are always going to sort of root for the, the sort of scrappy protagonist uh even if they're engaging in some you know some CD dealings um and then two i think i mean we sort of all i won't say a lot of people walk around with the hope that one day our big break will come and if that big break means I need to off my wife to get this debt done, <laughs> I will do that. You know, right. if things get desperate enough, what choices are you willing to make? How far are you willing to go? And there's a sort of living vicariously through these characters that happens. Because the fact, I, I mean, when you think about it, and I don't have the stats on this, I don't know how many like bank robberies happen in a given year. So oh, uh,
3: more than we think really? do, apparently. Okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> So there is this feeling of like, why doesn't, why isn't that happening all the time? Like, Mm -hmm. why aren't people just always trying to rob banks Right. Or this idea that we're always on the precipice of a sort of class revolt. Like this idea that the 1% has literally everything. What is it that, you know, pushes you over there? Just says, okay, fuck it. We're done with rules. We're done with societal norms. It is, I am now going to take what you have. Because I feel that I deserve it. I feel that I have been screwed over by a system (laughs) that was built to screw me. And I'm no longer interested in playing that game.
3: So there, there is, to these story, a very sort of quintessentially American yes. spirit to them. Right. First of all, I think America has always just loved outlaws. We've always mm-hmm. romanticized outlaws. Bonnie and Clyde. We all and, feel yeah. like we're repressed by the system, whether we actually are mm-hmm. or not. And therefore, pushing back against it is somehow our heroic act. Right. But then I do think it also crosses over into this thing that you've talked about a lot. With various movies we've watched about feeling like you're owed. Right. Like feeling, and it's part of that American dream thing where right. everybody thinks they deserve mm-hmm. to be a millionaire and to right. live the good life. Right. Um, and we're going to, we'll talk a little bit about some of our favorite movies in this genre, but one of mine is uh, Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, which I don't think you've seen. No. But it's about these three men in rural Minnesota, who they're out hunting in the woods or something, and they come across a crashed plane, like a small Mm -hmm. two-engine plane. They go in, it's obviously drug runners, everybody's dead, and there's a duffel bag full of like four million dollars in cash.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. And they, as many of us do, (laughs) decide to take it. And it, of course, all goes to shit once they make that decision. But the point is... They're arguing about what to do with the money, and one of the guys says, that's the American dream right there in the duffel bag. Hmm. And the more sensible guy, played by Bill Paxton, who starts out as the more sensible guy, he says, you work for the American dream, you don't find it. Right. And that's...
2: Right. The inherent lie there, though, is that this idea of the meritocracy, right? That you have to earn your way into the American dream, when in reality, a lot of the people that have, you know, been able to achieve, you know, wealth, were born into it, quite frankly. <coughs> okay, we're not going there. <laughs> <Bush>. <laughs> I'm Sorry, I'm just clearing my throat there this for a moment. Is, this is not that show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, right, so, and now we're becoming the socialism show. So, the health of capitalism, inso- insofar as that system can be healthy, is dependent on incentivizing consumerism, which then... Encourages debt. Okay. So, (laughs) that cycle is inherently punishing um, for most Americans, and you know it puts people in positions where if they find a million dollars the first answer is always i'm going to pay off some debt right. like that's that's always like i'm going to pay off student loans i'm going to pay off some debt because that has sort of that is sort of the the the, the load that many of us carry through you know this this sort of j- journey to the american dream is like if i could just get this right. debt and off because my back. and
3: because part of the american dream is always living at a slightly higher a level. level than you can actually right. afford to live it's always aspirational right. it's always okay
2: Right. So, it's hard to stand in judgment of those types of characters. It's hard to feel like, you know, when they end up inevitably failing,
0: <laughs> to sort of
2: feel any sort of, you know, schadenfreude about it, because you know that they are working within a system that has pushed them to a place where that was sort of the choice that they had to make at that time. And would we make a better choice in that instance? Okay,
3: but these stories tend to end with, like, a lot of people dying. Absolutely. Absolutely innocent people getting killed
2: <laughs> absolutely they it does but you gotta go for it you, you sort of gotta go for it i mean it really okay but is, every
3: time i have ever said to you let's go rob a bank you have because i know we would fucking fail
2: that's the thing is like and that's all that's keeping me from doing it is that i know i would fail <laughs> it's not about right or wrong okay i don't feel bad about robbing a bank thing, it is not it's not a morality not thing. thing no absolutely not It's because I knew I would get caught. And I do not want to go to prison. That's really the only thing. Like, that's how thin... That sort of safety glass is. Like once somebody decides, I don't give a shit.
3: I actually do think that's the real appeal of these movies, is that is that we all feel like we're right. just one push <laughs> away from going over that line exactly. all the time. And we're probably not. It would probably take more Much than that more. for most of yeah. us. We're pretty conditioned. Yes. And maybe fundamentally good people. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But we all feel like we're just mm. right there. Just you know, right. one thing goes wrong and we, we go over the edge. Exactly. And become outlaws.
2: Right. And fail <laughs> miserably.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, what are what are some of your favorite movies in this particular weird little subgenre?
2: <laughs> I mean, well, there, are, there are some definite good ones. Um, when you told me we were doing this sort of failed heist <laughs> sort of thing, the first thing I thought of was uh, Set It Off. Mm-hmm. Which was a 1996 film by F. Gary Gray with uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, Queen Latifah, uh, Kimberly Elise, and Vivica Fox. And it's sort of that perfect encapsulation of these are, you know, four women working within a system that is determined to make their lives harder. And they have decided, okay, I'm not just, I'm just not gonna play this game anymore.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And they attempt to rob a bank and, you know, I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but it all, in the end, it all sort of goes to shit except for <laughs> for one person. So this idea of like women sort of deciding that they're going to reclaim something from what is essentially like a white patriarchal capitalist mm-hmm. police state. So right. one of the characters loses her brother to police violence. Mm-hmm. Another character is fired from her job at a bank because she happened to be connected to someone who had robbed that bank. One woman has her child taken away from her by Child Protective Services. So these are all women who are like under the pressure of various systems who then decide, okay, this just isn't working. I cannot thrive under these systems. So we just going to go... And
3: those are all better motives than... They
2: are absolutely... <laughs>
3: Jerry Lundergaard who just embezzled right. money from right. his car dealership. Exactly.
2: Um, but it's that sort of same idea of like, I can't achieve within the system if I'm following the rules, right. so now the rules don't right. apply to me. Another one that's similar to that is uh, Dead Presidents, which was um, the Hughes brothers who had done Minister Society. Mm-hmm. And this is another one of like, this, these sort of larger sociopolitical s- structures pressing on people and making them... And and encouraging them to make poor choices, right? So the main character goes off to Vietnam, comes back, realizes that being a Vietnam vet is not, you know, the shit. Uh, <laughs> there's no, you know, the resources that are supposed to be there aren't there. Uh-huh. The support systems that are supposed to be there aren't there. You know, the jobs that are supposed to be there aren't there. Um, you're just sort of, after having served your country and seen horrifying things and done horrifying things, you come home to basically nothing and a family to feed. So you make a choice. Right. And that choice is to rob um, an armored van, I believe, is in that one. And again, it ends in... I haven't seen that one. It's, um, it's, a, it's a good... I haven't seen it in a long time. It's a good movie. Um, it's not great. It's not... Minnesota Society is definitely the better movie. But again, it's this idea of, you know, the American dream has failed me even after I've served my country. So I'm going to make this choice.
3: So it, it occurs to me as you talk about those two movies, both of which are black yes. ice movies, mm-hmm. that again, the motives seem much more honorable Lawfier. and justified <laughs> than, for example, I think a movie you and I both love, I think everybody loves Office Space.
2: Yes. He just hated <laughs> In his which job.
3: These are just guys yeah. who just hate their jobs and they're yeah. tired of their boss coming around and annoying them and they're fi- tired of filling out TPS reports. Right. <laughs> Yes. And so decide to break bad. Right.
2: That is a different movie. That's I think that's more of the sort of middle class dream. And that can cut across races, like I think, yeah. but that is of just like I just want to not have to go right. to my job just, anymore. My life should not right. be like
3: this. I like, don't enjoy this.
2: Exactly. You aren't really facing any deep struggles, but you just <laughs> right. don't want, which I totally understand. You just don't want to go to work anymore. <laughs> and I, that's why people play the lottery. It's like I want to be able to Quit my job. Yeah. And that's really all I want to do. (laughs) But I mean, a lot of these movies, yes, they are about these sort of grand heist moments and then, you know, the fallout after the inevitable failure. But they are sort of talking about these larger themes, like talking about our failure to support our vets, our failure to support low-income black women entrapped within systems. Even films that are sort of more on the stylized end of the spectrum, like... Raising Arizona, we've been mm-hmm. talking about coin Brothers. Um, right. They're still saying something interesting about what it means to sort of be left out of that dream, right? Right. So the scene where H.I. goes into the gas station <laughs> and is stealing um, Pampers, yeah. stealing Huggies. huggies. <laughs> There was a recent report that came out that one in three families in the in America can't afford diapers for their mm-hmm. children. Like that's a very real yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and he he says something in the film about you know that son of a bitch Reagan.
0: He's like <laughs> yes, so
2: right. So this idea right. that there's this larger sort of social political <laughs> thing happening that has made it so that people make these really or people choose to make what we would consider bad choices. Um,
3: I think we can say bad choices. You don't <laughs> to qualify that. Um, But another movie, I think, that has that kind of political subtext that you're talking about is Thelma and Louise. Yes. Again, it is something of a fantasy, Mm -hmm. and it is, you know, they're improvising. They end up in this situation. Right. But... The reality of, you know, the fact that there's very little justice for sexual assaults. Right. That, you know, these The place women, of women in society. Right. right. Her horrible husband. Mm-hmm. That, yeah.
2: That they're just... It, it, those choices then make sense. And those are all... Many of those choices and many of those circumstances are things that we as an audience can relate to and have either, you know, felt personally in our own lives or know someone who's experienced that. And we just made a different choice.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, possibly because we're big pussies. But... You know, that's what it is. Um, and you know, again, going back to Raising Arizona when they're hatching the plan to steal the Huffheim baby, it basically says, you know, they have more than they can handle.
3: Right. And right.
2: that's that's basically what it is. Banks have more than they can handle. Right. The rich have more Why than they can Why should someone handle. have so right. many when we have, <laughs> when we have so little? Right. So that's sort of what it is.
3: Um, I think a more, a very good, more overtly political recent example was Eller Highwater yes. from a couple of years ago. Mm
2: mm-hmm. With my favorite Chris of the white Chris's.
3: Is he your favorite Chris? I think I he might you like the other Chris. You like
2: Captain America Chris. You like Captain America I do like Chris. The, Captain America Chris seems. This is
3: Captain Kirk Chris. Right.
2: Captain America Chris <laughs> seems woke on Twitter. But <laughs> I like. <laughs> okay. I like Captain. But I don't like him as Captain Kirk, actually. I just like.
3: You like him in, like as he is in this movie? As sort he is grizzly yeah. and unshaven. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: I think if I had to, you know.
3: You like your Chris's with a little dirt. I on like their a little dirty Chris. Yeah.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's my favorite. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, that was all about the mortgage crisis. That yes, was all exactly. about the foreclosure crisis. Exactly. And they felt absolutely justified.
2: And can you argue bank. the point, though? Because it's, it's like, well, the fact of the matter is we have thieves in the White House. mm
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I thought you said we weren't going to be that podcast. We're
2: not going to be that podcast. But that is just a fact. Like, that is right. just truth. They're just very, very good at it. Yes.
3: And we have thieves in the banking industry who got caught thieving and nobody ever went to jail. And
2: And we just voted on legislation to further ease regulations on the banking. So it's just like, so everybody's robbing, right? (laughs) Atlanta, robbing season. Okay. (laughs) So some people are just positioned better to do it at a larger scale and get away with it. Versus the everyday person who's like, I'm just going to go right. rob that Citibank over there. Steal
3: $2,000, mm-hmm. get 20 years. Exactly. Steal $200 million.
2: You know, you get a get job a at, out, and, Walt, right. on Wall Street mm-hmm. or something. Exactly. So
3: <laughs> I feel like this is going to end with you and I <laughs> deciding to go rob a bank.
2: But see, again, I come back to, I would get caught. I don't want to go to prison. <laughs> so that's why I don't rob a bank. That's the only thing keeping me from doing it is I, th- I don't want to go to prison. I think we could do it. See, but that's that's what I've everybody got says. A plan. That's what everybody says. And then you're in the bank with a panty on your head, <laughs> and you're gonna get caught. <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> I don't want to go out in a blaze of glory shootout. That's not how I want to go. You don't want to
3: drive off the cliff, right? To I don't know. I would style. be like, bitch,
2: pull the car over. That's okay. Let me out. <laughs> it's been real. No.
3: We'd have fun, though, before that happened.
2: Yes, they have great time until you're dying <laughs> under gunfire or going off a cliff. Or back in prison.
3: Yeah, the one that, speaking of the Coen brothers, the one that gives me pause is No Country for Old Men.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Because that guy wasn't even stupid.
2: No, he made, he tried to be smart he was, about it. He
3: was smart, he was competent, he was an ex-soldier, he knew right. what he was doing, and he still ended up getting gunned down in a motel room and everybody he knew died, basically.
2: Coin ain't got no say. Coin
3: ain't got no say.
2: Yeah, that was... That could be... Maybe this is a sub-genre of the sub-genre, which is don't steal dirty money because those people... That is
3: a common theme. ...will
2: find you and murder you. That's what a simple plan is about.
3: (laughs) Um, Yeah, stealing from more competent, more professional criminals is never a
2: good idea. I I do not recommend that. (laughs) there will be no justice there for you. Got the militia out here. huh? Let Sal come out and take a look, all right? What hope you got, huh?
1: Come on, quit while you're ahead. All you got is attempted robbery. Armed robbery. All right, armed then. Yeah. Uh, nobody's been hurt. Release the hostages. Nobody's gonna worry over kidnapping charges. The most you're gonna get is five years. You get out in one year, huh? Kiss me, yeah. What? Kiss me. When I'm being fucked, I like to get kissed Wait, a lot. Come on, come yeah? on, come on. You're a city cop, right? Robbing the banks a of federal offense. They got me on kidnapping, armed robbery. They're going to bury me, man. I don't want to talk to somebody who's trying to calm me. Get somebody in charge here. I am in charge I don't here. want to talk to some flunky pig trying to calm me, man. You don't have to be calling What's you he picked. doing? Will you get back there? What are you going in there for? Will you What's get he the do? fuck back there? Huh? Get back What's there, he he you? doing? Look at him with go him. On, get over there. Go on back there, man. Get over there, will you? He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. Oh, God, I got going to kill me.
3: Okay, so what do you actually know about Dog Day Afternoon?
2: I don't know anything about Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> Literally nothing.
3: <laughs> Literally well.
2: I, well, I know you told it's Sydney Lumet, who I think I only know from The Wiz, as the director of The Wiz.
3: Yeah, and 12 Angry Men is the other one of his that I think you've seen. Yeah, he had an interesting career. I think he's a really underrated director. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that he... I mean, he came out of that New Hollywood era that we've talked about before. But he sort of consciously rejected that whole auteurism Mm -hmm. idea. People would talk about a Sidney Lumet style. And I think there is one, but he... Kind of, he said every script dictates the style. Okay. And I think if you look at his filmography, you can sort of, I mean, 12 Angry Men, uh, The Wiz, <laughs> Network is another great movie that we will watch one of these days. Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express. These are very different movies. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think there are things they have in common. I think even The Wiz, I think he was an interesting choice to do The Wiz. An inspired choice in some way, because I think, when I think of Sidney Lumet, I think of this sort of gritty realism, mm-hmm. and he's he's a New York, he's very much a New York director, he never went to Hollywood, and so I think the, the combination of the sort of grittier elements right. of that movie right. with the more fantastic, I think, for me it works, but I know a lot of people think that movie did not work at I all. I love the whiz. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, Sidney Lumet, we can talk a little bit about Sidney Lumet here, I think. So, he did, he made 45 movies in 50 years, a 50-year career, starting with 12 Angry Men, which was his first feature film in 1957. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a background in theater, and he was an actor originally, and he actually got his start as a director through one of your favorite people. Who was that? Uh, Yul Brynner. <laughs> was directing a TV show called Danger. Sure. Which was a it was a weekly live series on CBS that ran between 1950 and 1955 and it was kind of like a Twilight Zone sort of anthology series mm-hmm. about it was like psychological thriller, murder mm-hmm. stuff. Um, this, this series is, as far as I can tell, completely lost to us. It doesn't seem like any episodes still exist, but it, it was performed live every week and Yul Brenner was directing it. He was the director of that show for the first season. And when Yul Brenner went off to do The King and I. Yes. And became a big star, Sidney <laughs> Lumet, who had been the assistant director, came in and took over that. I hadn't heard of that show until I was looking into this, and now I'm fascinated by it. Because the people who worked on that show, it's insane. It's like James Dean, Grace Kelly, Paul Newman, John Cassavetes, Jack Lemmon. I've never heard of this. No, i never heard of it either. And all of these people did episodes of that series. It must have been, it sounds like it would have been great. There were fantastic writers that worked on it. Um, A lot of blacklisted writers Uh worked on it uh, under pseudonyms. Right. John Frankenheimer the director I think took over after Sidney Lumet did it like I and again the series is apparently lost like I would love to find yeah. if somebody ever finds you know a vault of this, <laughs> tapes of this show I would Danger. love to see them So that's where he started so he came out of that that kind of low budget theatrical tradition mm-hmm. um, he was famous for rehearsing his films like plays mm. um, which not everybody in Hollywood likes to do But, yeah, I I think he was a really underrated director, and I think this is, probably along with Network, his best film. So it stars two people that we recently became familiar with, uh, Al Pacino (laughs) and John Cazale, both from The Godfather.
2: Who's John Cazale? Fredo. Oh, fucking Fredo. to see this stevie wonder hairline <laughs> motherfucker again in my life you're,
3: you're gonna change your opinion about that really so john Cazale mm-hmm. is the answer sometimes movie people get into arguments and you try to think of someone who has never made a bad movie mm-hmm. john Cazale, because his career was tragically short is the answer to that question he made the godfather uh the conversation which is the movie coppola made between the two godfather mm-hmm. movies it's a great film um godfather part two Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Okay. All five of which were nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of which won Best Picture. And those are the only five movies John Casale ever made. He died of lung cancer in 1978. Um, but he is he's one of those character actors that every other character actor will talk about how good he was,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and his influence on them. Um, I think. I think you're gonna
2: change my tune. You're gonna
3: appreciate him in this film. Well, he's obviously
2: a very good actor because I hate Fredo. So <laughs>
3: well, Fredo, no, you know, no,
2: no, <laughs> Fredo. Is and you just, haven't even
3: seen the Godfather Part Two, so haven't. you don't even know the end of the Fredo because story. It,
2: I would have shot him at the end of Godfather One. <laughs> Fredo, this this is gonna be the end of the road for you, friend. <laughs>
3: Uh, okay, so let's. Um, so this film was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Pacino, uh, Supporting Actor not for John Cazale but for Chris Sarandon, who's a, who's also in the film. Uh, Best Director, Best Editing, and it won for Original Screenplay. That was the only Oscar it won, in part because that was the same year One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest swept oh, well, yeah. all of the major yeah. categories. And the other thing I think to say about it before we watch it is that it is based, as it says in the beginning, on a true story, and pretty faithfully. We'll talk about some of the changes that they made, Mm -hmm. but in in every important way, this all actually happened, and it happened more or less exactly as it's shown, and if anything, the real story is a little stranger (laughs) than what happens on screen. Okay. Okay. So I don't think I want to tell you much more than that going into it. I think maybe we will just go watch the film. Except I think to say, you know, you should take notes during this and we should figure out how we can do things a little better.
1: You know something, people? You're going to be remembered the rest of your lives for the day you got held up and kidnapped. At approximately 3 p.m. on August 22nd, 1972, Sonny Wurzick and Sal Naturale. Entered the first Brooklyn Savings Bank and attempted a robbery. Hey, freeze. Nobody move. the attempt failed. There's no money here. The police arrived. For the people of the neighborhood, it was a sideshow. Sonny! Sonny! But for Sonny and Sal, the hostages and the cops, it was a dog day afternoon. It's all a whim. Rob a bank. I had a plan. I had a planned. But you keep away from this banker, we're gonna start throwing bodies out the front door one at a time. All right, who has to go to the bathroom here? I do. The most you're gonna get is five years. You get out in one year, huh? Kiss me. They're gonna give us anything we want. Get some food in here, some pizzas, all right? What do I owe you for this. Drop headwood. No, I got it. I got it.
3: Hello, Sonny. You're on the air.
1: We're entertainment, right? What do you what do you what do you got for us? Panaka! Panaka! I, I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. I'm here with my partner and nine other people. See, we're dying. Don't, don't, son! Run. 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 Where am I gonna run? Algeria. Algeria? Yeah, They gotta have a Johnson's there, so I'm going. Al Pacino. Dog Day Afternoon. A true story.
3: Okay. During the break, Nikia and I watched Dog Day Afternoon. Nikia, what did you think of Dog Day Afternoon?
2: <laughs> I actually really enjoyed Dog I, Day Afternoon. I thought
3: you were gonna like this one.
2: I really did like it. This actually may be uh I
3: I, I feel a bold statement coming on.
2: I think this might be my favorite Pacino that I've seen.
3: Oh, your favorite Pacino? Mm-hmm. Better than The Godfather. I think
2: better than The Godfather. Okay. Because I think Pacino's better when he's slightly unhinged. <laughs> He can go a little too far that way and get just really campy and ridiculous, but this was sort of that perfect, you know, on the Pacino meter.
0: Uh-huh. He was right
2: in the Pacino right, sweet spot. Right. There's the sort of who end, right. which we don't want. And then there's the Godfather end, which is very good. Right. And he's like a tightly coiled snake through that whole movie for the most part. But this is a good good sweet spot for Pacino. I think it just works. One, it works with his face. Mm-hmm. Because he has those sort of wet dog eyes that are very expressive <laughs> and you sort of empathize. So there's a, there needs to be like a little bit of you know raw nerve to his characters i think
3: so as i said earlier this was based on a true story uh it was actually inspired by a life magazine article that appeared in september of 1972 by pf klug and thomas moore called boys in the bank uh describing an actual robbery that had taken place in brooklyn about a month earlier john woziewicz Was the Sonny character. They changed his name for some reason. And Sal Natural, they did not change Sal's (laughs) name when they made the movie. I don't know how that worked. Tried to rob a bank in Brooklyn. And it went down pretty much as described in the movie. Uh, They did change a few things. Sal was actually 18 years old and handsome. (laughs) Uh, he was a kid that had been in and out of juvie. Apparently not much is known about Sal, and that may be part of why they just went a different way right. in the movie. Uh, the other factor I know was that Pacino talked Sidney Lumet into casting John Cazale. Mm-hmm. I think for the better. <laughs> but the authors of that article described John Wojcivic, jo-, jo I don't know how to say his last name. John <laughs> Wojciavicz as having... The broken face, good looks of an Al Pacino or Dustin Hoffman. There you go. So, good there's a little, there. a little fate, and and the real guy did look quite a lot like Pacino. About halfway between Pacino and Hoffman, <laughs> you could cast <laughs> either one in this role. And actually, reportedly, Pacino freaked out, like, the night before they were supposed to start shooting this movie. Why? And was going to back out. And had he done that, they would have called Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman (laughs) was (laughs) next on the list to step in.
2: Well, I'm glad Pacino persevered. But they managed to
3: calm calm Pacino down and convince him to stay. I think he he just wasn't sure he could do it. He was a huge star. I mean, he was at the height of his fame at this point. He'd done... The Godfather's and uh, Serpico, mm-hmm. he was riding high. This was not a risk-free role right. for an actor in that position to right. play, and also he is a he was a very method actor, and I think just the idea this is a grueling story, mm-hmm. and as we will discuss,
2: and it's pretty much all him. Sidney
3: Lumet put him through a lot to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think he was just overwhelmed by the idea of it. Yeah. All of which I think went into the movie, and all of which I think paid off. Yeah. Oh, the real guys also saw The Godfather the day of the robbery. That's what they <laughs> did to kill time before they robbed the bank. And to get in the mood, mm. they went and they watched The Amped Godfather. themselves up there? Mm-hmm. Nice. And in fact, the note that John handed to the teller apparently said, I'm making you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> So it's almost like Pacino was destined to play this bird. It's like... Pretty the-
2: much. Uh, I really liked the sort of aesthetic of the film. I know earlier we talked about Sidney Lumet having this sort of gritty quality as a director. Mm-hmm. And him being such a sort of New York director. I felt, you know, the film feels very New York. Yeah. And in particular that like dirty 1970s New York before it got all yeah. cleaned up and shiny. Yeah. You know, that opening montage where there's, you know, he's juxtaposing scenes of the sort of working class, low income New York with the more upper class, wealthy New York. Yeah, so the see, haves and the, have the haves nots. and the rich. So you see the dog rooting through the garbage, you see people sleeping on the street, you see construction workers, and then there's a shot of the, you know, the country club tennis yeah. court and rooftop pools and things like that. Um, so very much setting up this idea of a divided New York.
3: Yeah. And it's fairly subtle, I like that. I mean, it's... Because at first, we we hear the... It's the Elton John song, which I think is the only music Mm -hmm. in the movie, the only non-diegetic music in the movie... But it looks like it's just sort of random right. shots of New York. And then you just start to get that feel for what he's doing right. there with the contrast. You know, we see people, like, in a traffic jam mm-hmm. on the freeway. And then we just see a jet plane shooting overhead. And we just get those sort of those little juxtapositions right. there. Right,
2: right. Um, so that story that, you know, sort of tale of two cities kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, there are two very different New Yorks happening. Um, and so it sort of sets up the environment in which our main story takes place. So you have, you know, New York in the 1970s and all that that entailed. You have, you know, coming out of the horrors of the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. and the sort of just complete disenchantment with that and with, you know, authority and government coming off some pretty major assassinations. Mm -hmm. And then you have this, you know, Vietnam vet plopped down into a bank in total desperation for money.
3: Right. And that I think I think brilliantly there's a change that happens an hour into this movie. Mhm. But the first hour is just is what you just described. Right. And it's kind of universally relatable. Mm-hmm. Any working class guy, Pacino's character can be a hero for. Right. Um, and it is almost exactly the hour mark in this movie that we get new information.
2: Leon. Shall we
3: say. <laughs> but, so let's let's talk about that first half of the film okay. first.
2: So the first half is sort of a farce. Actually, <laughs> <It's>,
3: <laughs> This is a very funny movie. It's
2: very funny. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we see the three guys, Sonny... Sal and Stevie <laughs> s- sitting I, in the, I
3: almost I, forgot about Stevie. you
2: can't forget about it because Stevie's very important um, <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the car very clumsily trying to case this bank, and so as a, Sal walks in first, yeah, and sits down w- with, with
3: the bank the manager. bank manager
2: and basically pulls a gun out of a box and yeah. is like, okay, and Sal I mean Sonny and Stevie walk in behind him, and Stevie says, "I don't think this is a good idea." <laughs>
3: I'm having a bad feeling about this. I'm not sure I can do this.
2: And Sonny says, he's already pulled the gun out.
3: Yeah, Sonny's like, what are you talking about? We've already started.
2: Wheels are in motion.
3: Like the gun is pointed at the bank Go manager. get in your fucking
2: position. So immediately, Stevie's a red flag. Stevie's gonna be a problem. Stevie's not up to this. And then... Sonny, Al Pacino's character, brought his gun in one of those big, long, like, bouquet boxes, yeah, flower mm-hmm. boxes, which is like, isn't that the universal sign for gun? Like, <laughs> I, do we even let people walk into establishments with those anymore? Probably
3: not anymore, but maybe then.
2: <laughs> and he fumbles to get his gun out of the yeah, box.
3: Because it's all tied up in a ribbon, which he obviously didn't <laughs> think about. The
2: fact that- oh, you're just watching the worst bank robbery <laughs> ever. <laughs> So, Sonny gets his gun out of the box, finally, after lots of fumbling, and then Stevie says, I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really not, this is not my scene, I'm not feeling it, can I go home? And, you know, Sonny being the nice guy that he is, he's like, okay, fine. (laughs) Right. Just go home. (laughs) Stevie goes to walk out the door, he's like, well, Stevie, you can't take the car home, because we're going to need the car,
3: Steve's like, well, how am I going to get home?
2: You're going to have to take the train, Stevie, because <laughs> we need the car. So there was a... And that's just a beautifully funny moment of just like, dude,
3: yeah. we're
2: trying to do this and you are making it so hard. Yeah. So that And it's is, like,
3: just from moment one, right. the plan is going to shift. It's just
2: terrible. So that is a sign number one. <laughs> Rule number one of bank robbery or any sort of crime where you're going to be working with other people, know your crew, okay? Vet <laughs> your crew... Thoroughly, because some bitch ass is gonna get in the bank and be like, you know what, mm, I'm not feeling too good about this, and then that's gonna be a problem. So they let C.V. out of the bank, <laughs> and after having been all up and through the bank for like 20 minutes, they realize, oh, there are cameras in here. Yeah, we should probably black those out. <laughs> But they're up basically at the ceiling. Pacino's kind of short, yeah, so he can't quite reach. He Can't reach
3: to spray paint to spray the cameras paint the
2: camera. again. Didn't really think this through, so he just sort of. Plus, sp- like
3: you said, they've been in the bank for ten minutes the bank, at like, this Your point face the running. is It's done. Yeah. It's
2: over. Like there is, no, and you've been using your government names yeah. in the bank, so any attempt at anonymity yeah. is gone. Mm-hmm. And so you know, there's shuffling the various tellers. So there, I think there are like seven. Women tellers, bank tellers, and then the male bank manager, um, and they and sort of
3: the male guard and the male
2: guard. Oh God, the poor guard, the security guard. Yes, who was black and old and was like
3: asthmatic,
2: quintessential "I'm too old for this shit" <laughs> <Yeah>. character. Um, <laughs> so uh, they shuffle them, the hostages, into the bank vault after realizing that they had missed the pickup. So all the money that was in the bank is now gone, and all they can get is about $1,100 out. <laughs> so then they go sort of scrambling for...
3: This was not... Apparently, that was something... That was made up for the movie. Ah. The fact that there was... They actually got, like, about $200,000 from the real robbery.
2: That's still not enough. But,
3: no, it isn't. But it's that was enough. just an extra turn of the screw they put in this movie. Like, it was... There isn't even any money there. Definitely
2: more in 1972, but... Yeah. That $200,000, that's not going to do... Well, it's
3: not like they got to keep it anyway. <laughs> well, that's true.
2: But still, like, it's not going to do too much for you. If you're going to yeah. risk your life and or jail time, you need to be talking millions mm-hmm. at that point. Um, especially if there's more than one person that that money has to be split among. But anyway, so then they like... You think
3: Stevie gets a cut?
2: Hell no, nah, Stevie don't get a cut. Stevie will get I mean, cut he, he when drove, we're back in the he neighborhood. Drove,
3: he he drove them there. Yeah, he, you and know. then
2: right, and then almost took the car with him when he went home. Stevie does not get cut. I wonder a if cut. Stevie
3: was arrested. I didn't check that. I I probably he was. He was an accomplice at that
2: point. <laughs> but he left. Which
3: really kinda of sucks for him.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, yes. So then when they realized that the, the Piggins were slim, mm-hmm. they decided to go for the traveler's checks. Yeah. And I guess there's some registry where they log the traveler's checks or something. Or there was yeah, some I assume that's what that was. I don't know exactly. Trace it. So Sonny had the brilliant idea of burning the registry. Right. Which is a fire <laughs> inside. It's going to cause smoke. So he basically sent a smoke signal yeah. saying I'm and robbing again, a bank. You
3: could just take that with you, maybe, and right. burn it later. Like it just there was no planning. The there was
2: really yeah. no planning or forethought in any of this. Yeah. So he basically brought the police to them via smoke signal.
3: Maybe. We don't actually know how the police get, get alerted.
2: Well, I mean Because
3: somebody notices the smoke right, and, and comes over from across says, the street.
2: Is everything okay? And the bank
3: manager tells him, No, no, everything's fine. It was a cigarette, everything's fine here, and he goes away.
2: He definitely called the police. Um,
3: in In the real case, the bank manager kind of alerted somebody on the phone that something was wrong, mm. which again is something else that's happening in the movie. The bank manager is just answering the right. phone and having all these conversations. Nobody's paying attention to what he's saying. Right. You know, he could have at any point said, I'm "Hey, being we're robbed. being robbed. Right. Call the police." Right. Um, and in the real in the real case, he he did that. But more subtly, he mm-hmm. like he was talking to another ba- another manager at another bank, and he made some comment that let the that guy co- know that yeah. right that something was going on. Yeah, and the guy was like, "Is everything okay there?" And the guy was like, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that happened in real life. The movie kind of leaves it vague.
2: Yeah, so then we spend you know eight to twelve hours.
3: <laughs> and I like the uh, I like that the head teller Sylvia
2: mm-hmm.
3: who. Pacino's character calls the Mouth, played by Penelope Allen. She, like, starts heckling him right from the start about not having a plan. She's like, what, was this a whim? Like, did you not have any plan at all? Yeah.
2: They all end up sort of doing that throughout the film. They're just like, what are you going to do next? (laughs) What exactly is happening? Because you (laughs) seem lost and, you know, in over your head. Mm
3: -hmm. All right. Well, I guess we should talk about Sal.
2: You know, Sal is an interesting character. So you know how I feel about Fredo.
3: Yes, you mentioned you were not a big fan <laughs> of Fredo Corleone.
2: Again, to the actor's credit, though, that I hate Fredo so much. Um, Sal, Sal is a problem.
3: <laughs> <laughs> this comes back to your pick your crew you Know your crew,
2: mm-hmm. right. Sal, that should have been pretty obvious from the get-go that Sal was going to be a problem. Sal was twitchy from jump. Yeah. Like, he did not become twitchy. He started <laughs> he out twitchy. He walked in
3: twitchy. One suspects he's been twitchy for a really long time. And then it just got time. worse. Yeah.
2: And you don't need twitchy people on your crew <laughs> when you're trying to get something done. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sal's an interesting character. There was an intensity about him that was frightening but almost respectable. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there's a, a conversation between he and Sonny, you know, when things were getting rough. Where he says, you know, Sonny, you said that we were either going to come out of this clean, or we would kill ourselves. Right. I- I'm ready to do that. Right. We can just go ahead and do. So, if anybody, you promised me we would just kill ourselves. Yeah. Number well, one. Well,
3: before that, like right when the cops show up,
2: he was ready to kill everyone.
3: Yeah. Sonny's <laughs> on the phone with the cops, and he's like, he's like, I'm going to start throwing bodies out mm-hmm. the door. And Sonny's like, Did you mean that? And he's like, No, I was just. That's just what I want them to think. And. Sal, I mean. And then Sal's like, well, I just want you to know I'm, I'm ready to I'm, do it. I'm ready it. to do that.
2: So, right. So, again, red flag. Someone who's very eager to kill. Yeah. <laughs> and also very eager to kill themselves. And you. Yeah. Should shit, shit get bad. That's not who you and want Pacino
3: to be. And Pacino is so good. He's very good. I mean, I said during the... When we did The Godfather, it's like, I forget how good Pacino mm-hmm. was. But, like, you can just see... Every additional element right. just piling onto his face as he goes through the this realization loop. that you're it's
2: working like, with a psychopath. So
3: many things I have to deal with. And, for
2: and now. then, what do I need to say so that he doesn't <laughs> lose his mind further? Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. There's
2: a lot of calculations happen when you're talking to a crazy person. You just have to go. Okay. Step one: diffuse the situation <laughs> and talk calmly and quietly. Um
3: but John Caval is amazing. He is amazing. And if you think about like what Sal must have looked like
2: on the page. On the page, yeah.
3: there's no character there. Right. There's nothing there. Right. Like, like he has maybe a dozen lines mm-hmm. throughout the movie. He's just basically the dumb mm-hmm. henchman guy. Right. And yet Caval makes him this just incredibly almost tragic yeah. character. Yeah. He's just weird and sad and yeah
2: a lot of it is definitely the sort of physicality that he brings to it again it's the, it's the sort of intensity of his eyes, the way he even just sits he's he's always very you know he's holding his guns and they're always sort of you know right at attention next to him yeah. just waiting for the go right the go words are like okay, this is has gone bad, and now we need to have to kill everyone, and we have to do this thing and it 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 really almost does feel this is a sort of a weird thing to say, but it almost feels somehow like religious isn't the right word Mm -hmm. but there's some sort of it's as if he's on some sort of holy quest that is more honorable than what he's actually doing like he approaches it with such intensity and respect almost for what he's doing and dedication to what he's doing
3: and he is he does have that element to him. we find out later in the movie he makes some comment right he's criticizing sylvia for smoking right he says your body's Body's a a
2: temple temple for the the Lord." lord right
3: um but at the same time i get this vibe from him like almost like he's in a bad dream mm. it's not like he's enjoying this no like he looks he looks like he's just he has this weird deer in the headlights sort mm-hmm. of panic in his eyes mm-hmm. and he's trying to get it right and he's really nervous but it's 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 a weirdly it complex is, it's very
2: complex yeah i just it almost feels like like there is definitely that element to it but I, it almost feels like There was a point, you know, when they were driving to the bank or whenever they decided to do this, that he said, Okay, I've committed to doing this. Yeah. And so I'm going to follow through as though it was some sort of divine mission, sort of thing. Like this was what he had to do. And throughout the movie, he just sort of struck me as this, like, almost sentry-type figure where he's just sort of standing guard mm-hmm. the whole time. And not engaging in the way that, say, Sonny was engaging right. with the people that were around him. Like, he wasn't really talking to any of the hostages. Right. He wasn't really talking very much to Sonny either, mm-hmm. other than quick asides here and there.
3: Well, there. I mean, there is a weird, like, we don't know why Sal is doing this. Right. We. He doesn't seem like he wants money or necessarily even you know
2: well, right. we don't
3: this is this is Sonny's quest right
2: but it's this idea of like um, and I I don't remember if he said that he if it was said that he was in Vietnam as well or not um uh
3: I think they say I think at one point Sonny says we're two Vietnam vets okay. but I don't know if that's true okay and like I said, the real Sal was eighteen. 18 right. So he was not a Vietnam vet. Right,
2: fat. but this idea of like someone very dedicated to a cause that they would die for, right? And this is and that is that seems outsized to what they were actually doing, right. right? Like you're robbing some little local bank. Like there's no need for this to be what it is for you. So yeah, I just found him to be an interesting character.
3: And Kazal apparently improvised what is I think Sal's best moment which is when Pacino asks him what country he wants to go to.
2: He says Wyoming. (laughs) He
3: says Wyoming. (laughs) Which, again, it's funny, and it's just sad. And it's, yeah. Yeah. And Pacino is just like, that's not a country. It's okay, I'll take (laughs) care of it.
2: (laughs) And again, this idea that like, you know, the fact that he says Wyoming, you know, that's as big as his dreams are. That's as big as right. his ambitions are. Is I right. really like to go to Wyoming. Everybody yeah. else is saying Algeria. Algeria. <laughs> or I think Holland was thrown out at some yeah. point, too, mm-hmm. and he could only get as far as Wyoming. Yeah. So it is like, why are you here? I don't understand why you're yeah. doing this and why you are so dedicated to it.
3: Yeah, there's a whole dark world to right. that mm-hmm. character that we just don't, we barely glimpse. <laughs> and it's it is strangely haunting, that mm-hmm. character. Okay, so while all this is happening, the circus is gathering outside. Yes.
2: There's a large crowd of local New Yorkers and media and the police. And together they create this sort of pressure cooker that Sidney Lumet uses to sort of say things about media, mm-hmm. to say things about, you know, society. Celebrity. Uh, celebrity.
3: We were talking before, you. I think you used the phrase something like that. You know, the the thin sheet of glass mm. between law-abiding citizens... And, and total anarchy. authority and total <laughs> anarchy. Right. And that's what it feels like right. builds right outside this bank. Right. With the crowds gathering and cheering on the robbers. Right. Um, the cops just barely keeping things under control. There's like 250 cops mm-hmm. all pointing their guns. Mm-hmm. And as Sonny says at one point, they want to shoot me so badly right. they can taste it. Right. And that I think that's true. Yeah. And so it is just like at any second, this whole thing could explode. Right. And Sonny starts to feed it. A he does. Bit. Well, he recognizes the
2: power of the media. He understands that you know he has become a sort of Robin Hood sort of character. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one point where he comes out to pay the pizza guy. Yeah. With marked bills, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he starts you know throwing money out into the yeah. crowds. And they're, of course, loving it and ecstatic and breaking down police barricades. Trampling the
3: police. (laughs) To get this money. Mm -hmm.
2: So, you know, borderline creating a riot. And he sort of understands the power of the media, both in presenting himself, but also as a way to control the cops. Right. Because we're coming off of the Attica riot.
3: And he knows
2: that the cops don't need another sort of bad PR (laughs) moment. So they're not going to really do too much with all the cameras around.
3: That was apparently another improvised scene when he started yelling Attica. Oh, that's really. And the crowd started yelling it back.
2: That's fantastic.
3: Um, We should probably talk a little about the Attica Mm -hmm. riots just for people who may not know. This was, I think, just a year or so before the robbery took place. I think it was 71 where something like a thousand prisoners, mostly black, Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, the core group was like Black Panthers and Nation of Islam, protesting the horrendous conditions at Attica State Prison. Right. Took over the prison. And for like four days negotiated, they had a list of demands that were, you know, stuff like better living conditions (laughs) and better health care and stuff like that. And it ended with... Helicopters dropping tear gas on the prison,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and then state troopers going in and shooting just about everybody, right? Kind of indiscriminately. And they killed, I think, 44 people, 10 of whom were hostages. They then tried to claim that the prisoners had killed the hostages, they had not. Autopsy showed that all of the hostages were killed by police. It was a nightmare, right? And Sonny talks. Throughout this film, about how the police are going to kill him if they get the slightest chance. Right. He says, you know, I'm going to take out... If I take a hostage out, I'm going to take a young mother with children because... They won't shoot her. They won't shoot her, right.
2: But it all serves to sort of create this environment of a circus, essentially, and... People start to sort of play their roles. Yeah. The hostages are now, oh, we're hostages. Right. (laughs) You know, and, you know, Sonny is, oh, I'm the, you know, the outlaw that everybody loves and the police are the bad guys. And
3: And again, as we will discover later in the movie, this was not a political statement, this robbery. not at all. He did not come in thinking all of that. No. This was all... Him improvising on the spot. Right. And, you know, yelling Attica and stuff. Like, it, it wasn't about that. Right. But it is now because it, it's playing to the crowd. Right. And, yeah, the hostages are getting into it.
2: They are absolutely getting into it. And I love that uh, they start getting, the bank starts getting calls from, like, perverts. Yes. Who are, like, saying really naughty things into the phone. <laughs> yeah. And so the the female tellers are getting in, like, breathing heavy into the, <laughs> and, so, and that's very sort of a quintessential New York 1970s yes. thing of just, like. It was just gross, and everybody was disgusting, and
3: <laughs> and then other people are calling up and being like, "Kill them, shoot all. shoot, shoot them all." So everybody's
2: sort of participating yeah. in this 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 madness um, to the point where it becomes it doesn't necessarily feel like a dangerous situation; It just feels like this sort of silly sideshow that you're watching. Yeah, and no matter what happens, you're going to be on the side of the winner because it's it's that's just you know yeah. what it means to be a spectator. Um, and
3: and I think I think the title of this movie is good because and the original title was Boys in the Bank, just like the the article mm-hmm. was, and Lumet never liked that title. And I think the Dog Day Afternoon title is good because part of it is we were talking last week about summer movies, mm-hmm. and it just it's a hot. Summer afternoon, people are bored. Like, this is the most interesting thing going on in New York, so they all come to watch. Right. And then that heat, just the miserable heat, is just adding to the pressure of it all. And the potential for explosion.
2: So all of that is going on, and then the tone sort of shifts a little
3: bit. (laughs) There's there's a little twist. There's a
2: little bit of a twist. Sonny wants his wife.
3: Yes. And we cut to... His wife. His wife and (laughs) the mother of his children. (laughs) Who is a character in Jeez, her own right? Yes, yes. Um, and we think that that's what's happening there. Right. And then that turns out not to be the wife no. that he had requested.
2: The wife is Leon.
3: Yes. Played by Chris Sarandon. Did you recognize Leon, by the way? I meant to ask you that.
2: No. Do I know Leon? Yep. Where do I know Leon from?
3: Uh, you know Leon from the original Fright Night? He was the vampire...
2: Oh! And
3: from Princess Bride, he's Prince Humperdinck. Oh, God, he
2: is Prince... (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious.
3: (laughs) So, yes. Yes. Leon is Sunny's... Wife. Wife. Mm -hmm. A
2: Transgender transgender
3: woman transitioning. Transitioning. And Sunny has stage this robbery to get money for Leon's sex change operation.
2: Gender confirmation surgery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this
3: is this is gonna be tricky because we're gonna try to use I mean there's the language they use in the movie. Right. And then there's the language we want to use. We now. know that is
2: correct now, yes.
3: No one no one uses feminine pronouns with no. Leon in the movie and Leon has no female name. Right. Leon is Leon throughout right. the movie, but we will refer to Leon with female pronouns. Right. Um, the real Leon was a woman named Elizabeth Eaton. Anyway.
2: So, yes, we we meet Leon.
3: So, yeah, they bring Leon down. Leon doesn't want to talk to Sunny. No. <laughs> Leon is doped up from the hospital. And, as we find out, sort of went into the hospital and sort of tried to kill herself to get away from Sunny. Right. This is not a great love story no. playing out. No. Um, it's a tragedy. Yeah. But yeah, this, this changes the narrative of the entire event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people in the bank start looking at Sonny differently. Mm-hmm. The cops start looking at Sonny differently. The crowd starts more jeering him right. with kind of homophobic taunts and stuff. The news is now suddenly describing this as a robbery of two homosexuals. Right. They're putting pictures of Leon in her wedding dress on the TV, and it's just like this whole new
2: narrative level to right. this
3: kind of circus that's happening. Right. And I think one of the things I love about this movie is that, especially for 1975, it's actually all handled pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think Sydney Lumet handles it all pretty well. I think Chris Sarandon's performance is tremendous. Yes. Um, Neither he nor Pacino are doing the stereotypical stuff that a lot of actors right. would have done right. at this point, And a lot of audiences would have expected at this point. I mean, I would I would love to have sat with a crowd watching this movie opening night
2: mm-hmm.
3: when they didn't know anything about it. And we get to that halfway point in the movie and they realize that...
2: The wife is Leon.
3: That the wife is Leon. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a Trojan horse thing where Mm -hmm. it's like Lumet sets it up so you you don't know what movie you're watching until you're about halfway in and you're already invested in all of these characters. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting. Um, There's a moment, I I think this happens before we meet Leon, where Sonny is doing a phone interview with um, a television news Mm -hmm. station.
3: Yeah. Who, again, just calls the bank. Just calls the bank. Like, (laughs) nobody shut off... The cops never shut off the phone lines or anything. Anybody can call the bank that wants to call the bank (laughs) during this robbery.
2: And the anchorman asks him something, you know, why are you doing this? Right. And he is sort of befuddled by the question, like, why are you, you know... Why am I doing this? Why are you why would you be asking me why I'm doing this?
3: <laughs> I'm robbing the bank because they have money I'm here. I'm robbing the
2: bank because they have money here. But then he sort of goes on to rambling about, you know, well, I don't have a union card, so I can't get a union job, and yeah. non-union jobs don't pay well, and what am I going to do? Work at a bank. The people at the bank make like, you know, $105 a week or whatever, you know, they made that was. And so, but it says nothing about the gender confirmation surgery. Like that's not Right. In the narrative at all, it's about the sort of struggling working class man just trying to sort of get a get a hold in society. And the bank is where the money is. So right. you go and you rob the bank. Um, I think he also says, like, my wife and kids are on welfare. Yeah. And so creating this story that had absolutely nothing to do with Leon. Yeah. Sort of the, the real reason why he was.
3: But he doesn't later hide or no. show the least bit of shame or no. embarrassment about Leon. Not at all. Uh, So it's not like he was trying to hide that. This is, I mean, the real guy, there was a documentary that came out a couple years ago called The Dog. It's on Hulu about the real guy. And he was, he's a character and he's kind of a mess and he's sort of Mm self-aggrandizing. And he, after he got out of jail, tried to play this off as, you know, this is, this was his life now is that he was the guy that from Dog Day Afternoon, Mm -hmm. um, he actually (laughs) One of my favorite stories from that documentary is that he actually tried to get a job as a bank guard. Sure. Using Dog Day Afternoon as the example of why he should be a bank guard. So, yeah, he was a mess, and he's a complicated character. (laughs) But he... The story he told was that he did do this for love. He Mm -hmm. did it for love of Leon, or the character Leon in the movie, um, because... If she didn't get her surgery, she was going to kill herself. Right. So this was to save her life. Right. That's why he did this. Yeah. How much of that is true Right. is up for debate. And whether either the real character, I mean the real person, or Leon wanted him to do this, <laughs> or wanted to be with Sunny. Like, this is all... Up for debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes, after some uh, cajoling by the police, and even a little bit of... Manipulation, by they they start telling Leon that she is an accomplice in this because... Right, which is ridiculous. Right, uh, because the money was being stolen on her behalf. They finally get Leon to agree to talk to Sunny. And it it really is a really beautiful, naturalistic moment between those two characters. It's a very loving conversation. Mm -hmm. And it is a conversation between two people who've known each other for a very long time and have had a relationship, you know, full of... uh,
3: Ups and downs. Ups and downs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, loving that person that is not healthy for you to yeah. love,
3: and it, it is also in a very angry conversation. It is a, very it's angry a messy conversation. conversation. It's very messy.
2: I mean, it's a conversation you have with someone that you're breaking up with. Yeah. Um, where you fall into the easiness of talking to someone that mm-hmm. you've loved for so long, but then. Somebody says something, and then you remember, oh, I fucking hate you, (laughs) and this is why we're not together. Mm -hmm. And it's just so... It was really well done. And like you said, neither of them played it in a way, in the sort of quote-unquote stereotypical way that you would think a film made in this time would have had them portray it. And that's one of the things I really, sort of loved about this movie, because in the middle of all of this circus, the sort of one thing that I feel like they that was taken very seriously was the relationship between Sonny and Leon. Like it wasn't treated as funny. It wasn't treated as, you know, um, like it could have easily played, like as soon as Leon got out of the car, that could have easily played as a laugh line. Like Oh, haha, It's it's actually a man. And they didn't play it like that at all. It was very matter of fact and very like, okay, well he has two wives. One of his wives happens to be a transgender woman and that's just what it is. And,
3: yeah, and it it really is the heart of the movie. It is. And that that scene and it's to me it's one of the most extraordinary scenes in American cinema. And it's I think it's like an 11 minute mm-hmm. segment. He has two phone calls. He has the call with Leon and then he calls Carmen right. right afterwards and I think the whole thing Pacino just sits there on the phone for I think it's 11 or 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. This was Lumet had him do it in one take and then made him do it again. He f- he finished it the first time and, it, you know, obviously it's emotionally draining and right. they're exhausted. And Lumet was like, OK, go again. Yeah. And they went went through the entire thing again without a break, without. Mm-hmm. And it was that second take that they use in the movie. Yeah. And you can just see how tired beaten down. he is. And
2: he just he keeps saying, "I'm dying here. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm dying here." <laughs> just... And
3: some of it was improv, and mm-hmm. some of it like, and it's just it's just an incredible, it's, incredible it was really sequence,
2: beautifully done. And the phone call with Carmen is just, and you can see why he's with Leon because <laughs> Carmen is a fucking mess. <laughs> like she oh, is poor just. Carmen. I. She doesn't stop talking. <laughs> And you can't get a word in edgewise. It's just like, shut the fuck up, Carmen. I was so scared, Sonny. You know, no, I can't come down there. I'm, I'm so scared of you, me. Sonny. I'm so scared. It's just like, if you could just stop talking. <laughs> And then he asks her, you know, why didn't you come down to yeah. the bank? And she's like, well, I couldn't find a babysitter for the kids. And, and it's just like, oh, I see why he needed someone else that was not you. Because yeah. you are a nightmare. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that—that's those two phone calls, I think, were brilliantly done. And were sort of the heart of the movie.
3: And it, it, it's one of those performances, too, where you're like, how did Pacino not win an Oscar for this? Mm. And it's, Nicholson won the Oscar for Cuckoo's Nest this year. So it's like, right. that's just bad luck right but yeah oh and then pretty much right after that his mother shows up
2: yeah she's also a nightmare um
3: <laughs> like that's the last thing you want and like i got so much to deal with here yeah. and then your fucking mother shows up you're
2: just like you could just turn yourself in or you could just run <laughs> just run right, they're
3: standing in the middle of this and like surrounded by 500 cops and she's like just run, Sammy. <laughs> just run for it.
2: Where am I running? <laughs> but again,
3: that's a sad scene, too. It is. Because he ends up, He's he finally says, you know, Ma, I'm an outcast and a fuck up. Right. Just, you know, forget about me. And it's, it's again, it's funny, but it's just sad. Right.
2: Of the three relationships in his life, the mom and Carmen are sort of cartoonish, ridiculous characters. Mm-hmm. And it's it's Leon that actually feels like...
3: A real relationship. A real relationship. Mm-hmm. And the real-life Leon, who became Elizabeth Eden, she did get her surgery out of this. Good for her. Because John Wolschowitz gave her the money out of selling the rights to his story mm. to make the film.
2: That's beautiful.
3: So in a way, the robbery worked. <laughs> Just not exactly as intended. Not quite intended. as planned. <laughs> they did not stay together. Which right. Maybe. Well, no,
2: they should not have. <laughs> that was obviously a toxic relationship.
3: But he paid for her surgery.
2: <laughs> well, that's probably the least he, he, he could do after she tried to kill herself over their nonsense.
3: And speaking of which, I think then after he gets off the phone call and he gets done with his mother, then we see him dictating his will.
2: yes. And you get the beautiful line of
3: about Leon, yeah, whom I love more than any man has ever loved another man in all eternity.
2: Right, and it's just again, it's just so just matter of fact. Like I just I'm so I was sort of amazed, I and mean, I probably shouldn't be, but it's just like I keep thinking this film was made in 1975. Or yeah, what, like that's beautiful. That yeah. you know it was sort of that.
3: I. I will not pretend because I'm not again, as I've said before, I'm not that organized, so I won't pretend that I picked this during Pride Month. Mm. But it it is sort of an appropriate choice mm-hmm. for for Pride Month right. because it it is just an extraordinary film for 1975. Right, and it, you know, again, it's not perfect, and it's not right. how we would make this movie today. Right, but. Just the the sensitivity with which it treats these issues and...
2: The legitimacy of it. Like, yes. there's just no questioning of it. Right. I think there's there's a moment when Leon first arrives. So the, the police are all camped out at the, I think it's a barbershop or something across the street right. from mm-hmm. the bank. And when Leon first gets there and he sort of sits down and he starts talking and telling his story, I think there's one officer standing behind him that you can sort of see just chuckle. Yeah, but other than that, everybody's taking it very seriously. Yeah. Uh, this is the his wife. Moretti,
3: right? played by Charles Derning, is not talking to Leon like Leon no, is a freak. No. Uh, now we can say he was just trying to
2: get what he needed. Get
3: what he needed right. out of Leon. But still he's right. treating her with respect.
2: And even, you know, when Sonny is in the bank dictating his will to the to the bank teller, the mouth. Um mm. <laughs> that that could have easily been a moment where someone said, you know, you're filthy or I don't believe in your lifestyle right, or you right. know any sort of things like that and it was it was just this is a legitimate relationship that you have this is yeah. your wife and that's just what it is and i just i was very surprised by that mm-hmm. but yeah so he dict he he dictates that he will leave you know i think it's something like $2500 to Leon for the gender confirmation surgery, he will leave... Out of leave. his life insurance. So Out he's, of his, he's, planning he's planning to be He's planning dead. to be dead. Right. right. And he will leave 5000 I guess that's 000.
3: always true. If someone's dictating a will, right. isn't you're it? Sorry. You're you're going
2: to be dead. <laughs> 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 he was assuming it will be happening immediately, though. Right, yes. Um, and 5000 to Carmen and the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Wait a
3: minute. Have I... This is my problem with my notes here. It's Angela in the movie. Carmen, oh. Carmen was the real wife. Sorry. Oh, okay. It's Angela who's the same character. Carmen. Yeah, I know. Okay. We can't fix it, so I'm okay. just we'll just admit it now.
2: Okay. <laughs> so Angela, right, and then and the kids, um, and you know that he wants a military funeral because he deserves it. Yeah, and it's free, and it's this sort of moment where I mean, for pretty much the whole film, he's been thinking. They were going to make it out of this. Like we're going to be able to get out of this, and we will be able to fly to Algeria or wherever they wanted to go. <laughs> uh, but so this is sort of the first moment where he realizes this is not going to work out. Like there's a very big possibility that this is not going to work yeah, out. I mean, they
3: they still think they're going to get away with it. They're gonna they're they wanted a helicopter. They couldn't get a helicopter. Now they got a bus coming in right. that's going to take them to the airport and put them on a jet, and they can go wherever they want to go. Right. And that is not. Quite what happens? No,
2: because that's not what happens. You're never getting on a jet. The police are never taking you yeah. to get on a jet and letting you fly away. That's just not going to happen. Oh,
3: and we we skipped over an important moment. So we haven't we haven't talked about the FBI agent, right? Uh, James Broderick plays him. That's Matthew Broderick's father. Oh, the actor, uh, who's kind of a creepy character. He's a little weird, but. He he comes in to check on the hostages towards the end of the movie, and right at the door as he's leaving, he says to Sonny, "Don't try to take Sal. We'll take care of Sal."
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So he is he's walked into this situation, sized both of them up, and realized that Sal's
2: the loose cannon,
3: the one he has to worry about. Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of how it goes down <laughs> yes. when they get to the airport.
2: Yes. They all get in the van, hostages and all. Yeah. And drive to the airport. And just as they're about to get out, just as they can sort of taste the air of freedom.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Sonny actually says, we did it. I'll be a son of a bitch, we did it.
2: The officer who was driving the car turns around and shoots Sal in the head. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking.
3: Yes, it is.
2: Because... Right before that, Sal had been saying that he had never flown before and yeah. he was afraid to fly. So as the hostages are getting out of the van at the airport... One of the... Yeah, Maria. Maria turns around and gives him a rosary and says, this is because you're afraid and I yeah. want you to feel okay. And then he's immediately shot That at didn't work. It did not. Yeah. That broke my heart. That, is, that was just yeah. egregious. <laughs> it, you don't have, it's like nobody needs to be shot in the fucking head, man. Yeah. And again, it's because of... Kazal's work with that character, I don't know what it is about the character. It just had, he had such a weird energy. There there was an intensity, but there was also this innocence to him, mm-hmm, almost. hmm And you're just like, oh.
3: Yeah, no, it, it is. hard, right. It's heartbreaking.
2: But yeah, so then they arrest Sonny, and that is that.
3: That is that. Sonny gets 20 years. He actually ended up serving about seven. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and then the little sort of end credits tell us that the wife and kids are still on welfare. Yeah. And Leon was living her life as a woman. hmm So, yeah, I guess Leon was the only person that came out of that with anything, really.
3: All right. Well, it sounds like this was a hit.
2: Yeah. I really liked it. I thought it was really well done. This will officially be my Cazow film, because I can't with Fredo.
3: We are going to watch Godfather 2 eventually. I don't,
2: I'm don't. i done with Fredo.
3: I don't know if we'll do the Deer Hunter or not. I'm not as big a fan of that as other people are. Probably we do this podcast long enough. We'll watch everything eventually. So. <laughs> he was also, speaking of, because she's also in the Deer Hunter, um, he and Meryl Streep were a couple at this point. She was with oh. him until he died. They had met doing Shakespeare in the park, I think, and they became a couple.
2: They were probably fun at dinner parties. Meryl Streep and John Gazelle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would have liked
3: to have been at those dinner parties. <laughs> all right, you have a favorite part of this film?
2: The phone call between Leon and Sonny is probably my favorite part. Though, that first sequence when they first enter the bank is just Just the comedy of hilarious sequence, it's yes. like, You planned nothing. You did not <laughs> make this out, this through at all. Um but no, I just thought I thought it was a really well done film overall. I thought it put a light to a lot of different things like one of the things that we sort of touched on was this idea of police brutality so coming out of Attica mm-hmm. and then the over eagerness of the police that were on the scene yeah. at the bank
3: there were a lot of little moments too there like when they send the guard right, out so, he released they want him to release one of right. the hostages so suddenly releases the guard the black guard asthma.
2: right and the police immediately descend upon him as though he were the suspect yeah. and have their guns drawn and they're slammed him against yeah. the car and it's just
3: and that's actually i i think that's the moment where um at least sylvia the head teller where she starts yeah I mean, we talk about stockholm syndrome but right. it's where she starts to side with Sonny. right because she's screaming at the cops like you almost killed him what's the matter with you right and at, at the end of that scene the cop tries to Take Sylvia, too.
2: And she says, I'm going back with and my she's girls. she's like,
3: I'm going back in the bank. Yeah. Like, I'm not coming out.
2: Yeah. Well, again, it's all about this sort of I, this distrust of the police yeah. and authority figures in general.
3: The, the I keep calling him the real Sonny. Mm-hmm. Um, he claims that the mayor of New York called him mm-hmm. while he was in the bank and told him, we will kill everybody oh, rather wow. than let you get away. Wow. Now, again, whether that really happened or not, right. it's, it doesn't seem completely implausible to mm-hmm. me that they had that conversation.
2: I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. That's not out of bounds for who we are. I mean, the police have bombed entire city blocks. Yeah. So...
3: Well, okay, so here we come back to the question that I started with at the beginning of this podcast. We are rooting for Sunny, right? In this movie. Mm -hmm. We would love to see him get away with it. Mm -hmm. Even though he's breaking the law. Doing it for love. Threatening (laughs) nine people with a gun. But
2: he says, I'm Catholic, I wouldn't hurt you.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but Sal might have. There's some
2: interesting morality running through this movie.
3: I mean, none of the hostages were harmed, thankfully. But they could have been.
2: Yeah. Um, No, we're definitely rooting for Sonny. Not so much. I mean, Sal, is that's that's a tough one. Um, But we are rooting for Sonny, and then, especially after we find out the sort of honorable reasons why he's trying to Mm. rob the bank, we're absolutely on his side. I wish he had planned better. (laughs) I think other films may have tried to do more through, like, flashback, because we don't... Like we said, we don't know anything about Sal, really, yeah, and we really don't know that much about Sonny, no, um Lumet doesn't feel any need to sort of explain who particularly Sonny is or Sal, or sort of justify or try to make you understand the reasoning behind how we got to this situation, right um.
3: No, it all comes out right. in the moment. That's the cinema verite thing, and I think that goes along with uh, there's no music, right? Telling you how you're supposed to feel. Right. The lighting he used only like realistically available lighting. Mm-hmm. There's no extra lighting in the movie. It's all very much just you are there, mm-hmm. almost you know, documentary style. We don't get the big speeches that right a lot of films would feel the need to do where somebody monologues about who they are and, you know, what their motivations are. Mm -hmm. Again, it just all comes out in the moment, and some of it is, we're not sure if it's true or not, because it comes out when Sonny is talking to the cops or talking to Leon. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think this is as good a movie as was made in the 20th century Mm -hmm. in this country. So you're glad you watched it.
2: I am. I'm, I'm definitely glad to have seen it. I mean, I am I like Pacino, so I'm always on board to watch Pacino. And you know my love for The Wiz, so. Sidney <laughs> Lumet was already a winner in my book. <laughs>
3: Does this give you more respect for The Wiz? Knowing, I mean, you can definitely see Knowing it. that this is the kind of movie yeah. Sidney Lumet <laughs> usually made, and then he made The Wiz.
2: <laughs> you definitely see that sort of aesthetic. But like,
3: again, you. Ha- this is why I said earlier. I feel like he was an inspired choice to was. do the Wiz because you're talking about just that dirty, mm-hmm. sleazy New York. Like that's what creeps through yeah. all of the fantasy elements of the Wiz. Yeah. Like that's Paul obsessed, where you have like the the fantastical world of Oz, right, superimposed over that down and dirty '70s New York.
2: That there's that scene when they they encounter. I think it's they're the poppies where they like yes. And it's basically like a seedy, sort of burlesque nightclub. It's yeah, like a strip club. <laughs> It's perfect. Yeah. It's just, but it is, it's like, it's grimy and dirty in the middle of this really beautiful, colorful fantasy. And there are lots of moments like that in The Wizard yeah. I really like. Um, but
3: the Sweatshop. The Sweatshop. A that stuff, yeah. I love that movie.
2: <laughs> it, it's just a great movie. People
3: hate that. You have no idea how much really? people hate that movie, yes.
2: I, it, the music is so great, though. And again, you have this sort of class discussion happening. Yeah. I, yeah. No. Yeah. It's it's awesome. Diana was too old, but...
3: Yes, yeah, she was. <laughs> That's my one legitimate complaint about that film.
2: But... <laughs> Otherwise, it was perfect. I love the wings. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad I watched... I'm a fan of Dog Day Afternoon.
3: Okay, then. My work is done this week. (laughs) Maybe you'll be more open-minded going into some of these movies in the future. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as Nakia encounters yet another great American folk hero fighting back against repressive authoritarian forces. (laughs) Kevin Bacon in Footloose.
2: So here's the thing. Flint still doesn't have clean water. Uh-huh. Puerto Rico has basically just been forgotten. Yeah. And you want me to care about a town without dance? That's gonna be a hard one. It's gonna be a hard one for me.
3: Without dancing, life has no meaning. And
2: it's a town of white people without dance. So it's also like mm. Maybe that's for the best.
3: In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic. Send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch.
2: You keep saying we. I will and not be it. participating in any heist <laughs> activities. Number one, black woman. <laughs> I will die. I will be shot down. I'm not doing it. No.
3: In fact, I'm going to wait in the car. You run in. Right, exactly. Rob the bank. Mm-hmm. And I'll keep the motor running. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see how that goes. No
2: absolutely not in fact if you go i'm calling the police on you and being like it's some white dude going into a bank i think he's about to rob you it.
3: would drop a dime on me oh
2: hell, you just said you would sacrifice me
3: okay i didn't say that you said
2: you would send me i in. said i would keep
3: the car running Bullshit. And wait for you. that
2: person always drives off no <laughs> no absolutely not no
3: we have a real trusting relationship here <laughs> I don't even want to commit crimes with you anymore.
2: <laughs> what you learn is there's no trust among thieves. There's no honor among thieves. Once we've agreed to do something horrible, <laughs> we would then do something horrible to each other as well. That's just the way that it's going to go.
3: Okay, sounds like fun.
2: No, it doesn't, because it ends badly.
3: <laughs> All right, we'll talk.
2: There's nothing to talk about. I want it on record that I will not be participating in any criminal activities.
3: Oh, good idea. No, I will not be participating in any criminal activities either.
2: Yeah. Alexa, how do you rob a bank? (laughs)